Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a guy. He's got his Colt 45, his two zigzags, and True Crime Garage is all he needs. He's the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you, you beautiful people. Tonight we are drinking Hop Circle ISA, that's India Sessions Ale. I like this one. I'm going to give it four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. Hop Circle is brewed by the good people at Red Brick Brewing Company in beautiful Atlanta, Georgia. Hop Circle is brought to us by some of our good garage friends. Big shout out to Casey in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. FYI, in case you missed it or fell asleep, the Buckeyes did beat the Badgers in OT. Also, we have Leland in Eddyville, Kentucky, Christy in Redondo Beach, California. Christy says thanks to us because we've transformed her commute into a mobile crime garage. We also have Christina in Macon, Georgia, and Jessica in Beaverton, Oregon, who says this round is on her. And if you would like to buy us a round for next week's show, go to TrueCrimeGarage.com and click on the donate button. We like your jib. And for everything True Crime Garage, go to truecrimegarage.com. You can also follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, all that crazy stuff. I did a behind-the-scenes little vlog this week about making the trailers, so you can check that out on Instagram, at True Crime Garage. And don't forget, Captain, we have our new True Crime Garage t-shirts out so go to the website and check out the new design yeah get those before they're gone you got to get them quick because they are flying off the garage shelves yeah they're flying off the garage floating crime ship fly floating shelves so get those now at truecrimegarage.com it's all very complicated and that's enough of the business that's right gather around grab a chair grab a beer and let's talk some true crime
This is True Crime Garage. And this is the case of the Atlanta child murders. Our special segment tonight is a fresh look at the series of murders in Atlanta. Aaron Jackson Jr. was among the youngest, only nine years old. Luby Jeter was 14, Timothy Hill, 13, Patrick Baltazar, 11. For almost two years, the bodies have kept coming out of Atlanta's rivers and woods, and week after week, police speak of sorrow and sympathy, but not a solution. It's just a, a tragic, horrible nightmare that we're going through. We're not in a position today to make an arrest. There are cases in history that have gone on much longer than this has. At police task force headquarters, there are 27 faces on the wall, 26 murdered, one missing. The killer? There is a handful of sketches, no one the same, no one certain to be the person police want. Almost a year after the task force was set up, police can't answer who or why. They don't know how or where or even how many of the black victims may have been killed by the same person. One investigator says even if the killer walked in the door and confessed, there is not enough evidence now to convict him. A half dozen of the cases may be isolated, unrelated homicides. The victims found near home, killed perhaps by family or friends. But somewhere in the city of Atlanta, there is a person who has killed 15 or 20 boys and young men. The district attorney keeps a chart on the wall with names of the dead and room for more. With my theory, the uh, person is not abducted, not kidnapped, not snatched off the street at that particular time, but is willingly going with somebody for something, at least at the instance they get in the car. They're going to make some money, or they're going to meet somebody. They're going starting off willingly. Like many victims, Jojo Bell, 15, was a child of the streets, always in need of money. He worked for his supper once in a while at the seafood carryout and always asked the owner to give him a ride home. He wouldn't walk speed at night because the cops let him kill him. You know, he used to joke about it. You know, he said, I ain't gonna let the kid, the kid snatch to snatch me. But someone did. Yeah, somebody did. Bell had been a basketball buddy of Timothy Hill. Hill spent his last known night at the seedy shack on Gray Street, the home of a 63-year-old homosexual called Uncle Tom. None of the victims has been found sexually abused, but the obvious question intrigues investigators. Mickey McIntosh, one of the adults killed, hung around the same carryout where Jojo Bell worked. You know, I have seen gays come down and seen Mickey in the car with, you know, gays. Uh, if we dressed all up and stuff, they'll come by here and sometimes look for Mickey. Atlanta's safety commissioner will say only what he doesn't know. Where we are in the investigation right now is we do not know the person or persons that are responsible, therefore we do not have the motive. The killer seems to taunt police and read press clippings. After a well-publicized but futile search along a road in an outlying county, the next child strangled with a rope was dumped there. And when a suburban police official criticized Atlanta's investigation, a child choked to death was left just inside that official's county line. After a press report that police had found fibers on some of the bodies, six of the last seven victims have been dropped into rivers, all stripped to their undershorts or less, possibly to wash away evidence. NBC News has learned, in some cases, the synthetic fibers were found on victims' clothing hanging in closets at home, indicating those children may have visited their killer at times before their death. 
but authorities have had this secret evidence for weeks and it still has not led to the killer. Police are undermanned and there is grumbling in the ranks. One patrolman is quoted, they don't tell us anything. It seems like they don't trust us. The murder investigation is being run by a 103-person task force. One official concedes it's not even certain what to tell the cop on the beat to look for. The investigation seems beset by friction and frustration. We're going to solve the cases. That's our resolve. The only unanswered question right now is when. Meanwhile, at the cemetery, the dead, Bell, Hill, McIntosh, are being buried faster than the cemetery can supply grave markers with their names. Sadly, some officials concede Atlanta is unlikely to catch the killer unless he keeps on killing. I will say that there's a better chance to catch him if he doesn't stop. Tonight we are talking about the Atlanta child murders. This is a series of murders that took place in the great city of Atlanta, Georgia, way back in 1979 was when the first victim was found. And it carried all the way until 1981. It spanned Mm -hmm. about two years. Uh, Unfortunately, saw a lot of victims in this case. Um, Some, you know, there's some debate on on, uh, if all of the victims belong in this case or if they're actually individual cases. But depending on the source that you check out, you could see a number as high as 28 victims. Mm-hmm. This was a case that uh, gripped the city of Atlanta in fear. Um, there was there were curfews. There was everything that they could do to try to bring, to apprehend this killer and to stop, to stop the killings. Yeah, there was a special task force set up by the police department. Mm-hmm. So there was a, and then the FBI was involved. Um, and also they set up this thing called the guardian angels, which was a volunteer group, mainly of like older teens and, 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 uh, males in their twenties. And they were kind of known as like the rougher kids, but mm-hmm. these kids were then taken to the streets trying to get any information leads, uh, s- some way of identifying a suspect well, because they had a lot of, you know, um, sketches made of you know when somebody thought they saw a suspect or Mm -hmm. but we're talking about i mean one would be a black man one would be a white man one would be a mexican man sometimes there would be two men um sometimes two men so it was they didn't have very much of a solid lead at all well and on top of that too here the the citizens forming their own task force. The reason that this happens is that they start to not believe in their own police force at some point. Mm-hmm. At some point, the victim number gets to be so high that they don't think that the police can solve this. Some of the people thought maybe the police did not want to solve this. And we'll get into that more uh, as we get into this case. Yeah. And we also had, there was rumors that the the people that they thought were suspects possibly were wearing police uniforms mm-hmm. so i think that's why these task force were set up by the communities the first victim that uh, is is attributed to this case is edward hope smith uh he was a 14 year old boy who was last seen july 20th 1979 he was leaving a skating rink 
Uh, he was found eight days later at Niski Lake Drive, mm-hmm. and the cause of his death was a 22 caliber shotgun to the upper back. Remarkably, on the same day, police investiga- investigators found the body of Alfred Evans, a 13-year-old boy who was last seen July 25th. Alfred was last known to have been walking to a theater. Alfred Evans, his cause of death was listed as undetermined. Unfortunately, and I'm and I'm a little uncertain as to why or to the particulars of this, but Alfred's body would remain unidentified for about 14 months, and this, of course, certainly does not help the investigation. Through March of 1980, four more children disappeared, this further complicating the investigation. The first was Milton Harvey, age 14. He was last seen September 4, 1979. He disappeared. He was out running an errand. He was going to the bank for his mother. Uh, He was riding a yellow 10-speed bike. Now, the bike was found a week later in Atlanta, but there still was no sign of the boy. He eventually was found November 5th, so this is about two months later. He's found in a wooded area in the neighboring city of East Point. Milton Harvey had been dead about one month when found, and of course there had been quite a bit of decomposition that had taken place, so his cause of death was listed as undetermined as well. Detectives would not immediately connect Milton Harvey's death to that of the first two boys because his body was found outside of the area. The second was Yusuf Bell. He was last seen October 21st when he went to the store to buy snuff for a neighbor. Mm-hmm. Later, a witness would tell the police... Chewing tobacco, Yeah, for people that don't know what snuff is. Later, a witness would tell the police that she saw Yusuf getting into a blue car. Yusuf's body was found on November 8th by a school janitor looking for a place to urinate. His body was found in the crawl space of an abandoned elementary school building nearby the boy's home. Wait, so the, so the janitor was going to go pee in the crawl space? He was going to go pee inside an abandoned building way in the crawl space. It's maybe mm-hmm. he did, felt it like he needed some privacy. I don't know. It seems like a strange situation to me, but that's who found the boy's body. Now keep in mind, this abandoned elementary school building was near the boy's home. Mm-hmm. And because the boy's body was found indoors and not outside in wooded areas like the earlier found victims, his case was not immediately connected to the others as well. Yeah. The boy was found wearing the clothing that he was last seen wearing, and he had been hit over the head twice, and his cause of death was strangulation. The third was Angel Lanier. This is a 12-year-old female. This is the first girl victim that we would see. Mm-hmm. Lanier had disappeared on May 4th, I'm sorry, March 4th, 1980. She left her house around 4 p.m. wearing a denim outfit, and she was last seen at a friend's house watching TV. She is found six days later in a wooded area, and she had been stabbed to death. Now, there are some conflicting stories here. I saw a couple of uh, sources here, and I do want to point this out. A couple sources that said that she was stabbed to death, and a couple sources that said she had been stabbed, but cause of death was strangulation. Yeah, this is going to be a repeating cycle that you'll see uh, different reports for each victim. Mm-hmm. She was wearing the same clothes in which she had left home, but there was something different here, something very different. A pair of white panties had been stuffed in her mouth and her hands were bound with electrical tape. Yeah, and they believed that those panties did not belong to her. Correct. They were not hers. So this is March 10th, 1980. 
Now, here's something kind of strange here, Captain, right? We have Angel Lanier, who's found March 10th, 1980. Mm-hmm. And she's found it in the wooded area near Campbellton Road and Willowbrook Road. So about a year later, the body of Jeffrey Lamar Mathis is found in the same location. But the crazy thing here is Mathis disappeared on March 11th. This is just one day after they found the body of Lanier. So, mm-hmm. you know, he, he took took the girl, he dumps her in a location, and then she's found, and the very next day, he's out abducting another victim. And they would they would find this victim in the same area. So whomever did this takes two victims within a week of one another and dumps the bodies in the same location. Now, I have to wonder how long until he returned to the site of where he left Angel's body, and then he's back there again dumping another body, and this is right after the police were there. This is taunting. It's it's no doubt in my mind that the killer, he, he felt like he could not be caught and that his armor was so strong that they would never catch up to him. Mm-hmm. So Jeffrey Mathis was a, an 11-year-old boy. He disappeared when he went to run an errand for his mother. He was wearing gray jogging pants, brown shoes, and a white and green shirt. A girl said that she had seen Jeffrey get into a car with a light-skinned man and a dark-skinned man. So here we go. The first report of seeing two possible uh, well, killers or abductors. From the way you're reporting it, it seems like this is the first time that anybody's been seen. Yeah. We, this we, is any line we have a of vehicle, suspect. We have a vehicle that was spotted yeah, we earlier. Have the blue vehicle, and then we have uh, now these two suspects. And now he's seen getting in the vehicle with, with two people. And this vehicle is blue as well. This is a, he's seen getting into a car, no description of the vehicle, Mm -hmm. just a a brief description of each man. Now, these two men could have had nothing to do with this case. It could have just been a car that he happened to get into. On May 18th, a 14-year-old boy, his name is Eric Middlebrooks, uh, he answers the phone and then he leaves in a hurry on his bicycle. His body is found very quickly. It's found the next day along with his bike. Mm -hmm. Now... Here's a twist here. He's found in the rear garage of an Atlanta bar. Uh, Next door is the Georgia Department of Offender Rehabilitation. He has stab wounds on his chest and his arms. These are like small stab wounds. Mm -hmm. And he died of blunt force trauma to the head. His his pockets in his pants were pulled inside out. Yeah, uh, it seems like, again, with a lot of these victims, I mean... A lot of times people think, well, if there is a killer, then he's killing uh, his victims all in the same manner. And in this case, you kind of see this mostly repeating theme of strangulation, but not always. And again, in this case, uh, not lining up with the strangulation either. But again, like you said, that there was this taunting you know, effect going on. So maybe it was because... Um, there was something in the paper that made him decide, well, I'm going to leave a victim out in the open. Yeah. And this is one that I actually thought when, when reviewing this case, I wasn't convinced that all of the victims listed were a part of the same case. I thought that there were a few that might be individual cases. This is one that I thought could have been an individual case. Um, but this is one where they will find evidence to be able to link this to some of the other cases. The reason why I thought this was an individual case is this, this young man, he had um, some run-ins with some thuggish people. He had, uh, he had testified in court against Mm -hmm. some people 
against like a, a young gang of kids. Um, and I think it was initially thought that that was what, Re- yeah, retaliation for testifying. And, exa- and exactly, he's found in a different situation. He's not found in a wooded area. On June 9th, 12-year-old Christopher Richardson, he is last seen going to a public swimming pool. He's last seen wearing blue shorts, a light blue shirt, and blue tennis shoes. And he is found the, f- the following January with yet another boy who was killed, and his name was Earl Terrell. On June 22nd, seven-year-old Latanya Wilson disappeared from her parents' apartment. This is the second girl victim that we're seeing here. Mm-hmm. According to a witness, she appeared to have been abducted by two men, one of whom was seen climbing into the apartment window and then holding Wilson in his arms as he spoke to the other man in the parking lot. On October 18th, Wilson's body was found in a fenced-in area at the end of Verbena Street in Atlanta. By by then, the body had been skeletonized. And so, again, we've seen a situation where there no cause of death could be established. The next day, June 23rd, 10-year-old Aaron Weech disappeared after having been seen near a local grocery store getting into a blue Chevrolet mm-hmm. with either one or two African-American men. The witness's description of the car matched a description of a similar car implicated in an earlier case. This was the Jeffrey Mathis disappearance. At 6 p.m., the victim was seen at a shopping center. The following day, Weish's body was found under a bridge. The official cause of death was asphyxiation from a broken neck suffered in a fall. In July of 1980, two more children, Anthony Carter and Earl Terrell, were murdered. We talked about Terrell. He was found with, uh, with Christopher Richardson's body. Between August and November of 1980, five more killings took place. There were no known victims during the month of December. All of the victims were African-American children between the ages of 7 and 14, and most had been asphyxiated. The murders continued into 1981. The first known victim in the new year was Luby Geeter, uh, who disappeared January 3rd. He had been last seen in the area of Stewart Lakewood Shopping Center in southwest Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Geeter's body was found on February 5th in a wooded area. This was just Jeter. What's that? It's pronounced Jeter. Oh, thank you. It's like Derek, like Derek Jeter. Jeter, but spelled differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so Jeter, this his body is found seventy feet from Vandiver Road, which runs off of Campbellton Road. Mm-hmm. Which remember, this is where two earlier victims had been found. Jeter's friend Terry Pugh also went missing in January. Mm-hmm. Now, an anonymous caller called and told police where to find Pugh's body. They found Pew's body in Rockdale County. So we have another jurisdiction to throw into the mix here. Terry was last seen at the Crystal, that's Crystal with a K restaurant, on January 22nd. Terry frequented a place called the Omni. Uh, this is also a place that a couple of the other victims were known to have hang, to hang out. It was like kind of a teenage spot to go to. Uh, Patrick Baltazar would be another victim, and he hung out at the Omni as well. Patrick was 11, and he was last seen in the evening hours on Cortland Street. This was February 6th, and his body was found February 14th behind the Corporate Square Office Park. This is in DeKalb, DeKalb County. Did I say that right? Yeah, I think that's correct. That's pretty close. Uh, but again, another not, jurisdiction. enjoy the hate mail. Yeah. He was found fully clothed. 
uh, although his clothing was unbuttoned and the cause of his death was asphyxiation due to ligature. In February of 1981, an Atlanta newspaper ran an article stating that the matching fibers that matching fibers were found on two of the victims' bodies. This was a big turning point in our case because the killer, just like we talked about last week, our killer is reading the newspaper. He's watching the news and he's reacting and adapting what he is doing to go against the investigation. Now, there's one thing I do want to touch on here real quick, Captain. You know, that some in some circles, and I've heard it said uh, several times, and I think that this is a common misconception amongst the general public. You hear this from time to time, that serial killers want to be caught. Maybe not on the surface, but somewhere deep down inside that they want to be caught, and that is why they end up getting caught in the end. So mm-hmm. here's the thing. He's adapting, right? So go ahead and believe that they want to be caught if that makes you feel safer. Mm-hmm. But but the absolute truth is no, no, they don't they don't want to be caught. The majority of them do not want to be caught. There there have been a few. I, there's one I and don't ask me his name right now, but there's What's his name. There's one serial killer I can What's remember that turned himself in. Um, and you know, so there, there might be a few that want to be caught, but, but the majority of them do not want to be caught at all because this is their drug killing and all that is involved in, in the, in the ritual for them. This is, it's their, what gets them high, you know, the, the sexual assaults involved, the rape or the the act of kidnapping, the terror on the person's face, the look in the, in their eye when they're strangling them. It's, this is all part of their, of their game. That's a little graphic for me, but right. But those those are the things that that I think that's assuming these a guys lot. Going, yeah, I think that's I think that's what we assume. I think especially in this case too, a lot of people will say that these aren't connected. Um, they're you know they're not connected because the different deaths and that a serial killer would kill somebody the same way over and over and over. There would be no uh, inconsistencies which we've seen time and time again, that that's normally not true either. Well, I don't know that it's assuming a whole lot of stuff because, I mean, again, time after time in these cases, we see the killer adapting his techniques to elude detection. You know, he is this guy is now dumping his victims in the river and leaving them in only a pair of shorts or nude so that there are little to no hairs, fibers, pet hair, anything yeah, yeah, on the bodies. They, yeah. They, the, the police end up talking about these fibers and therefore then it's like, well, now I got to change up my game. How can I dump the bodies without there being fibers on them? I'll dump them into the water. Yeah. And, it, and even if I do happen to still leave fibers, animal hair, pet, you know, yeah, it's going to destroy a lot the bodies, of the evidence. The, the water should be washing this away. But there, there's uh, conflicting reports on this anyways, because there's multiple times that the news um, in the in 1979 and 1980, they're talking about that uh, the majority of these victims were sexually abused. Mm-hmm. And then later on, uh, it's really hard to find any talk about sexual abuse in any of the reports after, you know, 81. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we said, after this report comes out in, in February of 1981, now the new victims are being dumped into the rivers. Uh, in March, there were four more murders that took place. Uh, this included Eddie Duncan. He's the first adult victim. Mm-hmm. Um, in April, there was Larry Rogers was murdered and there were two more adults, John Porter and Jimmy Ray Payne. Well, and that's again, if you assume that all these victims are part of the whole 
uh, Atlanta child murders. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we have William Barrett. He went missing May 16th, 1981. His body was found close to his home. And this is the last victim added to, I'm sorry, the last victim added to this list that I'm aware of is Nathaniel Carter, who was 27 years old. So we're seeing all kinds of different activity here, right? If if, yeah, we, that, if we're to believe that they're all connected. Mm-hmm. And it's a really tough thing to go through because there are so many victims in such a short amount of time. You know, if we assume that all 28 are connected, depending on what report you're going with, um, that's 28 victims that they find within a two-year period. It becomes this crazy list. And so, you know, sorry that we have to go through that morbid uh, list, but uh, this also is the reason why they spawned uh, they spawned a book called The List. And if you dive into this case more, you're going to see that as a reference point over and over. That's called The List. Uh, we'll talk more about this case right after a quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go. For a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. 
I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, now we're back from our beer break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. We've already gone through the victims in the Atlanta child murders case. And earlier we touched upon the idea that the the locals, the civilians, had set up their own task force because they weren't really believing in the police efforts and didn't trust the police to to finish the job, right? But they had we've already are seeing multiple jurisdictions, multiple agencies working together to try to solve this case. Yeah, and the FBI is involved at this point as well. The FBI gets involved as well as the BCI units. They come in and they're trying to figure out how to apprehend this person that is killing off the youth in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a couple problems here, though. They, they come up with some different ideas, and we'll touch on those in a minute. What, what I do want to get into right now is the super cops. So enter the super cops. Uh, these, this was an idea that they would grab some of the detectives and police officers that were involved in some of the most notorious cases in the United States. They would get them together for a meeting. They would present them with the victims, much like we just did earlier. 
and they would ask the super cops to, as a group, form several opinions about the case. Yeah, kind of a profiling session. Yes. Uh, so what? who were the super cops? These were people that were involved in the most notorious cases. Uh, they were looking for officers and detectives who had handled one or two, or sorry, one of two different types of serial cases. The first being detectives who did not know that a series of murders had taken place before the offender was caught. The second being detectives who were already pursuing serial cases, but did not know who the killer was. And here is a list of the members making up the task force that was the super cops. We have Captain Sidney Smith and Detective David Millicon. These were two guys that investigated the sexually sadistic killers Dean Coral and Elmer Wayne Henley, who killed 17 people and buried their bodies in a boat storage building in Texas. Mm-hmm. Next, we have Detective Frank Braun. He was one of the detectives in the famous John Wayne Gacy case from near Chicago. Gacy killed 27 young men and buried their bodies in his crawl space and some in the yard as well. We also have Inspector Joseph Borelli, and we've actually discussed him on this show. He investigated the famous Son of Sam case in New York City. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know he, he was the one that was out shooting couples that were sitting in their cars. We have Lieutenant Ed Henderson and Detective Philip Sartucci from Los Angeles and Bellingham, Washington. They investigated the Hillside Strangler case. We also have Inspector Jeff Brosh. He investigated the zebra killings in San Francisco, which were committed by African-American religious extremists. And last but not least, we have Lieutenant Frank Chase and Detective Robert Keppel from the Ted Bundy murder cases. Now, the super cops, as said, they were presented with with the cases and with the crimes, and they were asked to come up with, they had three objectives, all right? The first was to give an opinion on how many murders were connected. The second objective was to provide a criminal profile, and the third, to give a plan for apprehension. Now, let's talk about the first objective, murders connected. The super cops believed that at least 23 of the 27 murders that they had reviewed were connected and committed by the same person. Okay. And using this, they, they, they're going off of the idea that they had animal hairs and fibers linking nine of the victims. So there was not much debate over those nine, right? Yeah, but then we had a lot of the victims that ended up in the water. Mm-hmm. So and, that could uh, you know deter some of the evidence. So. I think that's what they're going off of is we got nine that we can link. So then we can probably link some of the ones that went into the water as well. You're exactly right. We have the nine that were were linked by fibers or animal hairs or both. Um, And then we have other victims that were found with some of those victims or near those victims. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, as you mentioned, or they also had relationships to the other victims. And then we start seeing the victims showing up in the rivers. So this is the uh, this is the killer adapting to the investigation, and they believe that these are all linked as well. So that bumps up the number quite a bit. They did say that they could not and would not rule out the other four murders. Uh, all twenty seven could have been the work of one serial killer, but they felt very strongly about the twenty three. Mm-hmm. The second objective was to create a criminal profile. Now. Nobody, it's hard to find somebody that's willing to take responsibility for this, okay? Uh, There was a theory going out there in the beginning of this case, and and it was going on until these super cops got involved. Now, this theory was that 
these crimes were committed by a white racist group, mm-hmm. by a white racist person or persons, or an occult. Uh, and they used these theories thinking with the thought that somebody or someones, they were working together to eliminate African-American youths in the community to create this all kinds of fear. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't think fear would be the type right motive. I think what if it was a white supremacist group, what they're trying to do is create one fear, but outrage, and then basically what you want to cause is a race war. Well, the first thing that the super cops come up with, and they're not very far into the presentation, that they all seem to agree that the Atlanta child murders were more likely committed by an African-American male in his 20s. And they, uh, yeah, okay. And they were good. They have some theories on this. All right. Let's uh, hear these, these genius theories. Okay. Very condescending. But uh, some of the killings had victims disappearing and, or were last seen in areas popular with young African American males. Mm-hmm. Um, and asphyxiation, asphyxiation was being the pr- predominant method of death. And this does not logically fit the white racist theory. These were not terrorist murders. This was committed by somebody, a young African-American male in his 20s, whose method of operation reflected a personality with a need for hands-on activity with each victim before and after death. This would be a killer that had the ability to move about freely. He would have to have had relationships in the community, and he needed his presence in the area. He, he, so he could be in the area on any given day that he would choose, and it would not be considered anything out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. He was somebody that could walk amongst the people and not, not stand out. The super cops also believed that the killer was taking victims. that had no idea that they were in danger. Asphyxiation is the most likely cause of death in most of the cases. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, there are no signs of struggle. This most likely points out that the killer was strangling them by surprise or they were drowsy. He was, he was doing something to create to, so they would let their guard down. Uh, and that he'd be able to surprise yeah, but them they and have overtake a toxic, them. Wouldn't they have a toxicology report? That was the first thing that the super cops asked of the Atlanta Police Department, that they wanted to see if there were toxicolo- toxicology reports done on the victims. Mm-hmm. They were not provided with this. The super cops did stick with this theory, though. They were saying that it was most likely that he was using drugs or alcohol to induce this drowsiness, mm-hmm. and that he could quickly... And, and well, and what we hear from the one, uh, I believe he's a detective and the trailer is he says that he believes that the, that these victims are going with, uh, the suspect willingly. Mm-hmm. So there is no like struggle. There's no like, Hey, get in the car. I got a gun that. So, so again, going with the super cop theory. Yeah. And then once that they were drugged or, or drowsy that he could then quickly suffocate the children or the victims um, and one thing that they're pointing out here is just like that other detective said that you just spoke about that for somebody to be able to do this for a killer to be able to do this, this would mean he would have had to have patience and a plan. And it meant that the killer would have spent considerable time with each victim from the initial point of contact to the induction of the state of drowsiness and then to the eventual murder mm-hmm. to accomplish all of this meant that the killer was deceptive and that the victims trusted him. They also believed that the killer would have had something that the young victims would have wanted, 
and that this would be how he would lure them into his trap. Money, money or something. You're exactly right. I mean, all these victims were coming from poor areas. Yeah, and they thought that the killer's line of approach was most likely an offer of a short-term job to make quick money. Mm -hmm. And they also noted that this is something that they had seen in their previous cases and that this is a typical serial killer lure. To the young victims, the killer may have looked like a role model or a big brother type figure. He is able to get his victims that range in age from nine years old to 28 years old under his complete control. Mm -hmm. And what added to his ability to attract each one of those boys was that they were exact clones of the murder of the murderer himself of what he thought of his own self image. He looked, thought, walked and talked just like the victims. And that would be what would appeal to the victims the most. He identified with his victims so well that his victims probably never were afraid of him. He would have presented himself as educated, well integrated into the community and always having a good job. His victims, because they were young, they were unable to see through his mask of superficiality. So the killer has the ability to mingle across a spectrum of elementary boys, teenage victims, and young adults. That would lead you to expect to find the killers comfortable in each of those atmospheres. He was, or probably still is, a volunteer or employee of a boys cl- of some type of boys club, you know, like the Boy Scouts of America mm-hmm. or the YMCA or so on. Yeah, or after school program. And he very well likely might have been a volunteer, substitute teacher, or vendor in an elementary school. He may have frequented boy prostitutes or been involved in the gay scene. He is not likely to have been an out-of-the-closet homosexual. In fact, he might have been known to hate homosexuals in some circles and be superficially heterosexual in his own family. Then there was the need for total possession of the victims by engaging in post-mortem activities with them. He had a sex drive that embraced necrophiliac tendencies and a willingness to spend considerable amount of time with the victims after their death. Mm -hmm. And he was also leaving the victims nude or close to nude and posing them in sexually degrading manner. As the police began to look more and more inept, this gave him a feeling of superiority. He wanted the police to feel psychologically like he really felt, helpless and controlled. They also knew that the killer was very aware of the environment and sensitive to the nature of the police pursuit and clever enough to modify his methods of movement and and the people that he preyed on. Again, we talk about the changing of victim dump sites from mainly land to rivers was the response to the publicity of his crimes. This also shows his ability to monitor the police investigation through public resources. How the police tracked him mainly with the, what they were doing with the bodies. They were examining the remains and they're looking for these similar fibers. And this was very, very important to him. And then he chose to leave the victims in rivers and this would diminish these chances greatly. He did not want to get caught ever. The killer was engaging in post-mortem activities with the victim should have led investigators to check out individuals who had worked no matter how briefly in the death death services field or were applicants for places like funeral homes or the medical examiner's office. That was their lengthy uh, profile of the killer. Mm -hmm. But when it breaks down, when you break it down to simplicity, what they're talking about is an African-American male who can go into these neighborhoods and be almost unseen because he fits into the neighborhoods. 
people don't expect to, you know, a white racist person could stand out and might be more noticeable if there's children getting into his vehicle. Mm-hmm. But they want to point out that his, his race and his age, and they also talk about some of the things of his personality. They talk about he could be a volunteer, somebody that would work with children or work inside of communities, somebody that would be trusted, someone that the victims would go along with willingly mm-hmm. and not ever suspect that they're in danger. Now, I think this is a fantastic profile, but of course, I've been able to see it through the eyes of somebody that's seen the case solved. Now, at the time, the local police decided that they did not want to release this profile. They wanted to keep this to themselves. Whether they believed the profile or not, I don't know. But what they did continue to do is allow the public to believe that it was a white racist person or white racist group or or the occult that was involved in these child killings. Their third objective was to come up with a plan for apprehension. Now, we do have to give credit to the Atlanta police force because they already had a plan that they decided that they wanted to run it by the super cops to see if the super cops agreed with this plan and if they thought that it would work. The reason being, it was going to be a very expensive plan to execute. Now, their plan was they now know that the killer wants to dump the bodies in the rivers. Well, they have two rivers to be concerned with. They have the uh, the South River and the Chattahoochee, the Chattahoochee River. Yep. So they have what they have bridges that they want to monitor, and they want to monitor these bridges around the clock because they believe if they can tr- catch the person red-handed on the bridge with the body in his car, or leaving the bridge after a body is dumped, then they've got their guy right. Yeah, or possibly start to deter him from dumping the bodies into the river. So they have a but, le- the, but go ahead. Both of those rivers are gigantic. So yeah. to assume that uh, one that a killer is just dumping the body above a bridge, I think is silly for one because I mean there's a million entrance points to that river. Mm-hmm. And so so the fact that we go, okay, we're going to go with these two locations. This is what we believe. We believe because of the fibers and what what you haven't been talking about is the fibers that they believe that they have on these victims come from a vehicle, possibly a trunk or something. So that's why they're, uh, the Atlanta cops want to hone in on these bridges. But I still think it's it's asinine because why would you stop on these major roads, on these major bridges to dump off a body? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, what their plan's going to entail is that they have 11 bridges that they want to monitor. Mm-hmm. And they estimate that each one of these bridges, it's going to take about five persons to monitor these bridges because they need to put one person on each end of the bridge to record who goes on and who leaves. They also need somebody in the middle of the bridge or below the bridge to monitor the water to see if there's a splash noise heard. Uh, this would be them, the killer dropping the body into the water. Right. They also needed two persons to send out nets because if they need to prove that it's a body that was dumped, mm-hmm. you know, that it wasn't just somebody throwing a brick into the river. Um, so what their plan was, was as soon as a, a splash was heard, that officer or patrolman, he would then make a call out to the, to the persons with nets. They would, mm-hmm. they would deploy the nets and then the persons on each end of the bridge would be responsible for monitoring and recording who the person was that left the bridge or had most recently arrived on the bridge. Mm-hmm. 
And the reason why this is going to be so expensive, we talked about five officers per bridge, 11 bridges, and now you're talking about guys working in eight-hour shifts so they can watch these bridges around the clock. Now, what is the math on that? That's like 165 guys just for a 24-hour shift to monitor 11 bridges. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, this is not the best use of tax dollars. That's a good thought, too, because you don't know how long, how many days in a row are you going to have to monitor these bridges. It could go on for days or weeks. And we saw at one point in this case that there was a month or so without even with with no victims. Right. Um, but they do catch a break. Uh, this is during a stakeout of the bridges mm-hmm. on May 22nd, 1981. Um, they one of the officers hears a splash beneath a bridge. Um, another officer notes that a white 1970 Chevrolet station wagon had turned around and drove back across the bridge. After going up to the bridge, it stopped, turned around, and came back. Mm-hmm. Two police officers later then stopped this station wagon. This would be about a half a mile from the bridge. The driver turns out to be 23-year-old Wayne Williams. Now, they stop him. They question him. Where are you going? What are you doing? He claims that he, is, he has an appointment. Uh, for an audition. He is a uh, music promoter and a photographer. Kind of like a talent scout. Yeah. Basically. And he's got an audition with an audition with a girl named Cheryl Johnson. She was trying to be a singer. Um, and Williams claimed that she had lived in a nearby town, but police could not find any record of this person or the actual appointment. Yeah, he also claims that he didn't turn around on the bridge. He claims that he turned around. He actually went across the bridge and then actually further down turned around. They claim he turned around on the bridge. He claimed that never happened. Two days later on May 24th, the nude body of Nathaniel Carter, who was 27 years old, he's one of the victims that we spoke about earlier, Mm -hmm. was found floating uh, down the river. This was about a few miles from the bridge where the police had heard the splash and had seen the suspicious vehicle and stopped Williams. But here's where it starts getting pretty muddy. It's because there's actually four what wit, four eyewitnesses, maybe more eyewitnesses that believe that they saw Nathaniel alive the day after they stopped Williams on the bridge. So this would be on May 23rd. Williams is stopped on the 22nd. Right, so basically this would make their suspicion null and void because he never dumped this body on that day. The other issue with this, and this is where it gets more muddy, is they believe they don't know how long Nathaniel was in the water, and it could have been up to two weeks. Based on the evidence that they found, they couldn't tell. Maybe he's been in the water for a few days, maybe a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And so now you get these very crazy opposing uh, accounts because if people did see him alive, well then Williams is not your guy, but also if they did see him alive, then how, how is it not clear how long he was in the water? Cause he w- would have only been in the water two days at that point. Right. And, uh, but they do have in their defense on their side, they have that Williams, Wayne Williams was the only person that was stopped on their their monitoring of these bridges. Yeah, but how many weeks were they monitoring these bridges? It was, it was several weeks. I believe it was four weeks. Yeah, so you got four weeks and you got nothing's happening. Mm-hmm. How many cops were we talking about in a 24-hour shift? Uh, 165. So 165 and, and, and 24 hours, you don't pull over anybody suspicious. Then you pull over this young 23-year-old black, black boy, basically. Mm-hmm. 
and and because he turned around. He turned around somewhere, whether it was on the bridge or if it was a little further down from the bridge. I think that's why they pulled him over. I don't think, I, who knows if they heard a splash. Yeah, it, it's been called the splash heard around the world. Um, and But regardless, they pull over right, Wayne but Williams. The, but the problem that we have with this is, yeah, you hear a splash. Who, who, you don't know that that's Nathaniel. Yes, they find Nathaniel, but the two opposing accounts are, one, he's been in the water for weeks. So weeks before, you, you heard a splash that happened two weeks ago? That's either the account or the other account is that Nathaniel was actually live the day after. Mm-hmm. And so there would be no splash at all. Unless unless the one eyewitness account is completely wrong. It's not one. It's at least four. At least four. And 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 different reports that I've seen have said four credible, eight total. Now that's a lot of eyewitnesses. When when Williams is pulled over. Um, the officers notice a 24 inch nylon cord is in his vehicle. Um, and this, this would be what they would say would be the, um, murder weapon in several of these cases. Mm -hmm. And again, we talk about how the attack may have went down. Um, these were attacks where there didn't seem to be any type of defense wounds on some of these victims. Some of the victims didn't even appear to have reached up to defend themselves, to pull whatever it was from their neck that was choking them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they believe that this, when you took that, that nylon cord that they found, uh, that when you would lay it across the neck of some of these victims, that, that it would match up perfectly in size. Yeah. Now, I don't know the science on that. I don't know what changes with the neck after death occurs. Or yeah, but then when they go to trial, they don't bring this up as the murder, murder weapon. Yeah, and another thing... Because that, when they go to trial, they basically say, we do not have the murder weapon. Yeah, and the other thing that, that makes Williams look bad, but again, something that they cannot use in, in court, is that he does fail a polygraph examination. Um, now we're, we have to circle back to, well, okay. First of all, he's a music promoter, so we know he's lying. Uh, it's kind of like a lawyer, right? How do you know they're lying? Their mouths are moving. Their lips are moving. Yeah. So it's, I think it's the same thing. The other problem too, is that, you know, these profiles, these super cops, as you call them, they say that the, that the perpetrator would be having, um, you know, killing these victims and taking them places. And, t- and and these these victims would have to go back to William's house. Now, one one would think so, right? And and the only fiber that matches is this carpet fiber. Correct. That could be in thousands of houses, but therefore it, the, it's either a transfer. Williams is transferring this carpet from Williams onto the victim, or the victim ends up in William's house. Now, how is it likely Williams' mother is what? She's a teacher, mm-hmm. and what's his father? Is um, I think he's a teacher. Or I think so. he is a teacher. Yes. Yeah. So two educators, and he has to get these uh, these kids into his house, uh, whether they're murdered beforehand or afterhand. And you're going to tell me that they have no suspicion of this? It doesn't make a lot of logical sense to it, me. You're exactly right. You you are exactly right. But the but with the fibers, okay. So we have fibers from a carpet from the Williams residence mm-hmm. uh, was found to match those that were found on two of the victims. Additional fibers from the Williams's home, their vehicles, 
and their dog were later matched to fibers discovered on other yeah, victims. But, yeah, but matched is, uh, they're using that word pretty loosely because when they first found the dog fibers, they claimed that it was from a Siberian husky. Mm-hmm. But then once they got Williams, he, what does Williams has? He, have, he has a German shepherd. Mm-hmm. So therefore they said, okay, well, yeah, well, this pretty much matches a Siberian husky, but we're going to, it also matches a Germ- German shepherd. Well, what range Which is, is it? it going yeah. with? I Which, mean, it it matches a dog. We know it's dog hair. Close enough. I mean, that's what it seems like to me. You don't make a you don't make a, a report that you have dog hairs and it's this breed, and then later on say, well, it's all it could be this other breed as well. Well, and then you have your four eyewitnesses that say that they saw Nathaniel Carter alive the next day on the twenty third. However, there was an eyewitness that said that they had seen. Nathaniel Carter holding hands with Wayne Williams on the night of the 22nd. That's the night that police believe he was killed and then dumped in the river. And this eyewitness uh, account is a little fuzzy anyways, because I I believe the first account was that he was holding hands with a white male. And then later on that recanted to, no, it would be Williams because Williams was a lighter skinned black. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, oh, I kind of got that wrong. Well, again, in this case, we have tons of eyewitness reports seeing white men, white man with a black man. We also have this report coming out, too, that I saw him with a white man, uh, two white men, and one of the white men had a a visible scar on his right cheek Mm -hmm. slash um, jaw area. And does, and this is an eyewitness account that comes over comes out more and more and more. Okay, Williams has no scar on his right cheek. So are these people just misidentifying everything? But I thought he had a some type of birthmark on his right cheek. Uh, I, that, I that don't may, know. If you look at the picture, I don't see it myself. It may have been confused for a, uh, for a scar. Um, it should be pointed out the vehicle that he's pulled over uh, the night of when they believe that Williams was dumping the body was actually his parents' vehicle. Mm-hmm. He was living with his parents at the time, and they had a station wagon, which mm-hmm. they recently just received because before that they had a blue vehicle, which we have the accounts, the eyewitnesses saying they saw a blue vehicle. And what makes this kind of interesting as far as the Williams scenario goes is during this whole time, they have this blue Ford, I can't remember what it's called, but it's constantly breaking down. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly getting new rental cars. Um, because he's like upper middle class or not upper middle class. I'd just say middle class. Right. Uh, even so much so that the detectives, when they were like, okay, now here's our number one suspect. Even when they went to the house, the first thing was, well, geez, this is a nice place. Right. It, it was, it's very shocking for the detectives, but all these cars that they're giving them majority of the time are Fords. So all of them would have the same lining in the trunk normally the same lighting lining and you know where your feet go um but they have records of all that and that was presented in the trial as well uh unfortunately for williams a lot of that um does not exonerate him yeah and it it's interesting because having access to so many different vehicles probably helped him elude detection for so long i mean you you get confusing reports oh we saw this car oh we saw that car with the next victim and so on and so forth that goes that helps Williams carry out these crimes and go undetected. Furthermore, 
you know, he's driving his parents' car the night that he's pulled over, but he also had his own vehicle as well. So we see an additional vehicle that he had access to. Yeah, and I, I, I and a lot of the stuff that I read, I, they don't talk much about that. It just seems like it's pretty. Maybe that vehicle isn't working in, in working order too. I mean, he is, you know, basically doing some freelance photography mm-hmm. and video. I think videography as well. Uh, but primarily he's like a, this like kind of a loser music promoter, you know, fast talker trying to make uh, something big happen, you know, talked about how, you know, we have this group and we want to model them after the Jackson five. Mm-hmm. Well, I got this group too. I want to model it after the Beatles, the best selling group of all time. So he's, he's kind of a fast talker. Well, speaking of, of the, the, uh, the music promoter, uh, one thing that they noticed after the case, okay, this was after the fact, um, they noticed that on several telephone poles around where kids were last seen or had gone missing from, uh, there was a sign posted on some of these telephone poles, and it read, I'm going to read it just as it reads, okay? The sign said, can you sing or play an instrument? If you are between the ages, if you are between 11 and 21, male or female, and you would like to become a professional entertainer, Mm-hmm. You can apply for positions with professional recording acts. No experience is necessary. Training is provided, all interviews private and free. For more information, call between 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. And then it gives a, a 10-digit phone number there, uh, 404 right, area my, code. Right, which is his parents' house, And I, I presume. and Well, it, the, yeah, the, the number was for Wayne Williams. Yeah, now here's another issue with this whole thing, though, because Wayne Williams claims that, yes, we were a talent scout. We are looking for talent. And that when these murders were taking place, that they actually contacted the the special task force that they set up just to go over these murders and explain to them what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So, again, that's something that wasn't brought up on trial either. Yeah, it is strange, though, how much the... And I'm not saying that he's guilty because he matches the profile presented by the super cops, but it is strange how much he does match that profile, right? I mean, he he's the right age. He's the right race. Uh, he has the right involvement in the community. Uh, some of his freelance work as a photographer was taking school pictures, so he was familiar with those environments and those that age group of kids. Um, and then the other thing they said with the possible offer of a short term job for quick money, uh, we see these, these signs posted on the telephone poles where it's offering, you know, if you want to get involved and become a musician or an entertainer, a professional entertainer, call me at this number. Yeah. The, the problem I have with it is again, the number he's using to have them call is his parents' number, both being educators themselves. And I just don't think that you know I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of teachers that by the end of the year they're tired of their brat students but uh nobody's going to stand by why you're going to let your son murder these these kids right so right. that doesn't make a lot of sense to me and also you hire these super cops and they just so happen to come up with a profile that it's a young black male and this fits a better narrative for them because if it is if it is a, a racist white guy or a racist white group, then we got a we got a whole nother issue, right? Well, of course, um, but that's what I believe. That's what the community wanted it to be in the end, and that's why you saw the uprising of these 
uh, civilian groups that were coming up with their own task force. Um, I, I got to give the, my hat is off to the super cops. I believe that they were on to something and I believe that in the end, the right guy was apprehended. Now, how many of these cases was he involved in? I can't say. Well, technically, so what happened is he went to trial. They, they convicted him of two of the murders, none two of, of the adult murders. Yeah. None of them being children and, um, zero there were, I mean, they didn't have the the murder weapon. Uh, I mean, almost little to no evidence at, at all. He gets tried for those. He's sentenced to two life terms in prison. And then what they do with the other cases, they just close them. Yeah, they, they closed the majority, if not all of the cases, and attributed all the crimes to Wayne Williams. But we do have to address the elephant in the room, right, Captain? There, One doesn't have to look very far to see. You can see and hear and read multiple interviews with Wayne Williams where he's proclaiming his innocence to this very day. Yeah, and normally this is something that, I mean, this is something that happens by a lot of uh, suspects in murder cases. This one's a little different, though, because... In 1986, Spin Magazine runs an article. Mm -hmm. In 1985, they get a tip from the group Guardian Angels. This is a group that was pretty successful. They would take um, citizens of normally urban areas. They'd be walking the streets, getting information, uh, and basically keeping street crime down to a minimum. They contact Spin Magazine saying, hey, by the way, we have some information for you. The prosecutors got it wrong. We think that these murders, or at least majority of these murders, were um, racially related, and they were done by the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. So Spin Magazine wants to know more about this. They set uh, Barry Michael Cooper, which did the first uh, published story on crack cocaine, and Bob Keating. Mm -hmm. um, and he did a story on the Live Aid scandal. They go down to Atlanta and they investigate these uh, claims. Now, the tip was that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation was actually at the time uh, that they were looking into Williams or before Williams, they had this parallel investigation. So you had the child murders happening, but there was a, per a parallel investigation into the Klan being involved not in all the murders, but being involved in one murder with a small town boy. And if that was true, they believe that that one murder connected them to another 14. Mm -hmm. So where does this all come from? It comes from informants. The first informant would talk about his relationship with Charles T. Sanders. Charles T. Sanders was a known Klansman. He was uh, connected with the new order of the Ku Klux Klan. One day, this informant, his name was B.J. Jones, uh, was out with Charles Sanders. And uh, Jeter, one of the boys that went missing, actually hit Sanders' car with a go-kart. This pissed off Sanders. He said, I am going to get that black bastard and I'm going to choke him to death with my... And I'm not going to say it. Um, didn't think much of it. The Charles Sanders also was running his mouth to this informant, this B.J. Jones, basically talking all this stuff about how you know they're going to they're killing these children. He wanted to uh, recruit him into the Klan because 
Jones had some experience with bombs and explosives. He just thought that Sanders was just running off of the mouth. Well, once Jeter came up missing, this BJ Jones then submits this stuff to the police saying, look, I was with, I was with him the day that his car was hit. And then, uh, then he made these remarks the next time that we, we, uh, saw Jeter and then Jeter shows up dead. Now, when Joe, when Jeter shows up dead, uh, his genital, his genitals are missing his lower pelvic area and both feet are also missing. Yeah. He, he was the boy that he would have been about 14 or 15 years old. He wouldn't have had a driver's license. So it makes sense that he was in a go-kart. Uh, he, he hits, uh, Sanders vehicle and, uh, he was the one that disappeared on January 3rd and his body wasn't found until February 5th. This was in a wooded area. Uh, he was last seen in the area of Stewart Lakewood shopping center in Southwest Atlanta. Right. And we have an eyewitness claiming that she saw Jeter get into a car with a tall white male with a scar on his face. Scar on his neck, I believe. Yeah, yeah, scar on his face or his neck. That's roughly the the eyewitness testimony. Well, this would come into play because now we have this parallel investigation into the Klan, and now we have somebody to target. We have Charles uh, T. Sanders. Now, his family, the Sanders family, there's at least five members, five known members that are involved in the Ku Klux Klan. Multiple charges, multiple convictions to the these members and their family, everything from child molestation, murder, assault, battery, drunk driving. These are just not great people. Uh, also charges with narcotics. Uh, Charles Sanders was a known, uh, his business was narcotics basically. So the, the main suspect is Charles Sanders, the brother, Don Sanders. Uh, there's also like, I believe a Terry Sanders, and then we have a uh, Carlton Sanders. The Carlton Sanders is the dad. He's a tall white man. People would describe him a sunken jaw, but he has a scar on the right side of his neck. Carlton Carlton Sanders was charged with over thirty-five counts of child molestation. He was acquitted on those charges, but um, you know this family overall is just connected to some evil stuff. So you make threats to somebody saying that you're going to choke somebody to death. Um, and then they end up dead, dead by strangulation, but missing body parts. Yeah. And on top of that, as you said, the, the, the father matching the description roughly of what the one eyewitness says is the last person, you know, he, he had seen he or she had seen him getting into the vehicle with a person matching that description. Um, now how does this tie them to any of the other victims? Well, remember we had said that, um, that Jeter, he had frequented a place called the Omni. Um, this would be a place that several of the other victims were known to have hung out, as well as his body was found 70 feet north from Vendiver Road, uh, which runs off of Campbellton Road, which was where two of the earlier victims were found. Another piece of evidence is that they have actually a tape-recorded phone conversation with Sanders talking about wanting to buy guns and grenades and things like that because basically they were tapping his phone and all this basically proves is the mo- the motive if we kill these little black children and we can create a race war and 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 if that's their motive 
well, we kind of know that there's that's their motive because they're also collecting weapons at the same point. Right, and not only collecting weapons, but he is urging and encouraging other clan members to arm themselves and to to create these arsenals and and um because it, it, he even says that if there were to be a race war, I believe he even puts a date on it and says that this this will happen sometime in 1981. So you better gear up and be prepared uh, because you're going to be involved in this. And and one one wonders if they were preparing to come forward and say, "Hey, we're responsible for these murders," or if they were being, or if they were prepared that they were going to get busted. So some odd things in the JoJo Bell case was <laughs> that. Jojo Bell runs in, tells his friend, hey, look, there was this white man and a black man. They wanted me to get in their car. Um, you know, he thought it was a little sketchy. He told his friend he ended up leaving. That night, his friend saw him missing on the evening news. Uh, Jojo Bell's work, the Captain and Peg, I believe that's his work or a place that he would do odd chores for, for a little bit of pay or maybe even just dinner. They get a call the following evening and the assistant manager answers the phone and on the other line it says, this is Jojo and they're about to kill me and I'm about dead and they're about to kill me. Jerry, they're about to kill me. Then the phone went dead. Now again, in this report, he's he is stating they. Yeah. He's not saying he, he's saying they. And again, it doesn't go along with what the super cops were saying. They were saying that uh, this would take somebody that had patience and had a plan and that the the victims most likely at no time would suspect that they were going to be in danger. And then uh, nine days after Jojo um, goes missing, uh, Timothy Hill, Jojo's best friend, goes missing as well. They get another... um, mysterious phone call to this cap captain peg restaurant and this one is from a woman sounding white and uh somewhere maybe in her 30s she says uh her man is dangerous she says jojo bell was different from the other kids who had been murdered because she liked him and she was trying to have him release she said do not call the police um because if they did that this person would kill her too now she just says She's talking more singular. Her man, her man is dangerous. And heck, for all we know, these could just be prank phone calls. Um, but you know, again, these are things in the trial of uh, Wayne Williams that are not brought to light. At this point, the parallel investigation into the Ku Klux Klan or just members, uh, especially the investigation to the Sanders family, it's full blown all out wiretapping and they have a conversation. Basically what they're trying to do is find something that's a little more concrete. Mm-hmm. We know that they're buying weapons. We have these, um, this informant that said that, uh, he heard Sanders, Charles Sanders threatened this boy, um, Jeter that ends up missing or went missing and then found dead. So they're ramping up this investigation. They get this phone call I could read it to you all, but it's in the article, the spin article, if you want to check that out. Uh, I'll try to put a link or something in in the show description. But basically, it's not... Charles 
Sanders talking. It's Terry Sanders and Donald Sanders. Mm -hmm. And back and forth through this conversation, Donald Sanders basically, uh, you know, is trying to, what are you up to tonight? Oh, not much. Okay, well, I might swing by. Okay, well, I'll see you later. And then the one guy goes, you're going to go look for another boy? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go. I'll go look around uh, for another kid and scope out some areas. Now, this is very, to me, credible and very damaging mm-hmm. to, again, is Wayne Williams responsible for all of them? I would say no, 100% certain. I believe he's not. Uh, is he responsible for a couple of them? Possibly. I, I don't know. At this point, because this becomes so muddy and murky, it's like you don't know what to believe. What is up now and what is down? And I'm not really for sure. Robert Keppel, he was the author of the Riverman book. He was also a member of the Super Cop unit that we had talked about earlier. He was involved in the Ted Bundy investigation later on in the um, Green River Killer investigation. But he was one of the Super Cops that they brought in to be involved in the three objectives that we talked about, you know, were all of these cases linked. Now he did have a, a, a big complaint that he didn't care for when they were being presented their information. He did say that there was a lot lacking, uh, as far as the information that they were provided to determine if all of these cases were connected. They basically received a, a bit of a limited timeline with a victimology, uh, talking about the deaths of each one of these victims. Well, and, we talked about the, co- the toxicology report not being uh, submitted to them as well. Right. That was one of the things the super cops had asked about was the toxicology because they did believe that some of these or all of these victims may have been drugged or alcohol used on them. They mm-hmm. couldn't prove that without having the toxicology results. And furthermore, actually, Robert Keppel believes that maybe that a toxicology wouldn't have even been done on some of these cases. Furthermore, he goes on to say that in one of the cases, the one that I had brought up that I thought was probably not connected, but then the police later say, well, there's fibers that match some of these other victims. Uh, we had talked about the, the victim that was found uh, in a garage with his, with his pockets pulled out. Right. Um, and one thing that Keppel had asked in this situation was, well, can we see, we need to be able to see these fibers. We need to have uh, the the actual reports on these fibers because one thing that the super cops had questioned were, is there a chance that these fibers are so generic that right. anybody could have them in their homes or anybody could have them in their cars? And the right. captain brought up one, in, one thing that was really interesting earlier about uh, Wayne Williams's parents having multiple vehicles, whether it be rentals or because they were replacing vehicles or whatnot. And we know Wayne Williams drove a separate vehicle as well. Um, we're seeing all these fibers and they're saying that those are all linked, but we're also talking about multiple vehicles. Well, and also what, how are they linked? I mean, like everything with DNA or fiber analysis, it's always linked to a percentage. Mm-hmm. Oh, one out of a hundred. I mean, if you break down what the percentage is, if it, if it's these fibers are found in 25% of the homes in Atlanta, well, now you've got this huge uh, spectrum. Um, but the, basically the other conclusion too is that, that, you know, the vice president at the time uh, pushes the prosecution and, and, and Atlanta's police force pushes the prosecution saying, if you're not going to rush this trial uh, with Wayne Williams, uh, we're going to replace you. 
And then, then the defense is thrown under the bus because not only are we going to be tried for these two murders that Wayne Williams then gets found guilty of, but we're going to allow information into all these other deaths. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about thousands and thousands of pieces of evidence on a trial that's going to be rushed. So um, because of the spin article, it was reopened. Uh, then it was closed and they put him back in his box. Now, I, I think the point of all this is I don't know if this, I'm not sitting here saying, well, it has to be this Charles T. Sanders. But if you have this investigation, you know, it seems like sometimes uh, law enforcement, government, or whatever it is, they're not interested in the truth. You know, they're just trying, they're trying to mop up this bad problem, mm-hmm. you know? But they're mopping it up with a wet mop. Right. You know, you're just pushing the water around. And at the end of the day, if he, if, uh, if Wayne Williams didn't do this, then you got an innocent man sitting in prison. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that, that's the first flaw. But also, um, the community has a right to know. And the parents of the victims, and majority of them now, after these articles like this, after these other informants come out, the parents of the victims say, look, we don't buy this Wayne Williams theory anymore. And it's not fair to them for them to not ever know the truth. But the truth of the matter is that most of the time, law enforcement, government officials, the vice president of the United States, they don't give a shit about you. And it's not because you're white and it's not because you're black. It's because you're poor. Mm-hmm. So it, even if this happened to a, a group of poor white kids It'd be the same thing. It's a poverty thing, and I think uh, it's it's a shame that we're not any. I don't think we're anywhere further from solving this thing than they were in 1981. Well, I mean, okay. So here's the thing. Think about this, though. Too, we have Robert Keppel who who is pointing out clear clear holes in the investigation. And yet this police department, this police force flew in all these super cops from different states and different cities mm-hmm. and paid them and put them up in, in nice hotels and asked them to stay in their city for a handful of days. And, and meanwhile, they present them with, with Swiss cheese like information. Yeah. Or they put their, you know, it's like, Hey, uh, fight this fight. Oh, by the way, we're going to put your hands behind your back. Yeah. And they're, they're like, okay, well, if these super cops are willing to put their stamp on it, that 23 out of 27 murders are connected, then all we got to do is find the guy that does the next murder. And if we can link him to more than one, then we probably found our guy. Right. Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing here too, is they presented a completely different profile than what the, public was already working off of the public was working off the profile that it was a white supremacist or it was a group of white supremacists. Right. And when, when these people were, when these super cops were flown into Atlanta and paid to be there and they offered this very extensive profile that yeah. goes against everything that was already the, the original thought. Well, and also that then, the, then right. they're told that we don't want to release that profile. Well, why did they not want to release that profile? Did the Atlanta police force know something that they did not present to the super cops? Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, that's the thing is you can only present, uh, your profile of the evidence that, uh, of what you are given. 
Now, the, the apprehension, the, the plan for apprehension, it did lead to Wayne Williams. Do I believe that he was involved in some of these deaths? Yes, I do. Because there are, there are some things, you know, like the carpet fibers from his home. Uh, I think that those are going to be different than the, the fibers that we talk about from the vehicles. Well, there's, it's very flimsy evidence at best. But, mm-hmm. but the, the, if you do dive into the, the fiber evidence, it, it, it is more likely it points into the direction of him. But that is on just a couple of them. Yeah. They, well, and then one of the victims, there was two human hairs found on them, and they have tested those since then, and they cannot rule out Wayne Williams on that one particular victim. Yeah, that, that one's weird, though, because um, they actually believed initially when they found that, that those two hairs were of a Caucasian male. Mm-hmm. But then they found out, well, actually, it's a very small percent that would also match with an African male. Right. And that very small percentage, like two percent. You're you're exactly right. It it would rule out like ninety seven or ninety eight percent of African American males. Males, but Wayne Williams falls into that two percent. So that very small percentage. Right. Yeah. And I, it's maybe it's a little more than two percent, but it's not. It's not five percent. Is it possible though that that part of the reason that this case was so tough and that why we saw twenty eight victims? or that, that there were two killers working in a similar area, um, probably killing with two completely different MOs. But this would definitely, you would definitely think this would throw the police off. And the other thing that makes it hard to believe that Wayne Williams would have done all this, we're talking about 27 or 28 victims. Super cops say maybe 23 of them. That's a lot of victims in like a 24-month time period. That's, I mean, th- th- that's a lot of rapid action. I mean, you're you almost would be doing nothing other than killing and covering up the crimes, uh, you know, in certain situations. Well, and I think sometimes knowledge hurts you. I think most of the time knowledge helps you. I think in this case, it kind of hurts people because they do this thing where they go, oh, well, the killer, the killer must be reading the paper. The killer must be following what the cops are doing because now the killer is throwing the bodies into the river. Mm -hmm. And there's a possibility if they aren't linked if less of them are linked, right? Maybe there's only three or four that are the same. Then, you know, or or maybe just the ones that were found in the river are connected. Mm-hmm. It, it, it necessarily doesn't mean it's the same person. And then just in this case with the whole, um, the Ku Klux Klan um, connection. Yes, you made these threats and maybe uh, Charles Sanders carried out these threats. Yeah. On one victim that just happened to know three or four of the other victims. Right. But it is very possible. Now, that's when you just get into this crazy world. But, you know, so it's very possible that Wayne Williams is responsible for two of them. And then the Sanders guy is responsible for one or two of them. And then there's just somebody else. Uh, you know, all this things come out about the uh, KKK afterwards. There were a couple things that did come out against Wayne Williams after the fact. Uh, one being that a police officer would later say that at one of the crime scenes, Wayne Williams had stopped by uh, and offered to photograph the body for the medical examiner's office, that he was a freelance photographer and that he would do this to help out with the investigation. Mm-hmm. There's, It's also suspected that he was that he um, may have signed up to try to help search for one of the victims. 
And then in a third case, there was an eyewitness that had reported seeing Wayne Williams in his vehicle attending uh, the funeral of one of the victims. Yeah, that's very odd. Uh, Again, I mean, I think uh, it's weird because if you watch an interview with Wayne Williams, he doesn't seem like that bad of a guy. He just seems very uh, slick. You know, Mm -hmm. he seems like... uh, Yeah, he's slippery, isn't he? Yeah, well, he seems like, you know, he's, you know, he's hot shit or something. But uh, this whole case in general is frustrating because one, uh, the victims, they didn't, they didn't get to live um, a meaningful life. They didn't get the opportunity to do something productive with their life. Um, And the other sad thing is that there's no real answers. I mean, you have a guy behind bars, but there's no real answers. And we, we really need to start pushing for the, you know, it's truth. That's what we should push. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. You know, uh, you know, just find the truth. And while the captain and I might not agree on if Wayne Williams was connected or if he was responsible or how many of these murders he was responsible for, I think one thing we can agree that we, uh, that one thing we do agree on is that uh, it was irresponsible of law enforcement to close all of those other cases just because you had a conviction on two of them. Well, what that, what the law enforcement did was they told the parents of those victims and the families of those victims, you are nothing more than a number. That's the statement that they made Mm -hmm. to me. And I, and I think that's uh, absolutely wrong because white or black, it doesn't matter. And, and frankly, I get tired of people going around and identifying as such. I'm a white male or I'm a black male or female or whatever. At the end of the day, we are a human race and we should start acting like it. Thank you, Captain. I'm so inspired right now. All oh, right. I'm just, I'm I just, sometimes these cases just piss me off and, and I try to just be light and airy, but God, it just pisses me off. Well, you want to hear something else that's going to piss you off? My, my, <laughs> we have to do a show next week. My recommended reading for this week, Captain's mm-hmm. going to hate this. I'm going to recommend a book that I recommended before. Oh my God, just yeah. do your job. Yep, this is one that I recommended way back when, probably on our third or fourth episode. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I'm recommending it again is because it is on my very short list of true crime books that I keep returning to that, that multiple times in my lifetime. I've read this thing four times. And I went back to it when we started looking into this case for this week. And that is by the author and detective Robert Keppel that we talked about in this case. Uh, and his book, The River Man, Ted Bundy and I Hunt for the Green River Killer. Mm-hmm. The reason why I keep going back to this book is because it's it's by an investigator. One that was involved in some of the biggest, most notorious crimes in this country. Uh, it involved the Ted Bundy case. It involved the Green River case. He was also one of the super cops in this case, and it discusses the uh, the Michigan, the Oakland County child murders as well. Um, this is one of my favorite true crime books of all time. You can pick it up by going to our website, truecrimegarage.com, click on the recommended page, and look for the river band Ted Bundy and I hunt for the Green River Killer. And you can get anything through Amazon, so go to truecrimegarage.com, click on our Amazon banner, you can buy anything, and they kick back a little love, no extra cost to you. Uh, if you saw my Instagram uh, video of making the trailers and making the music for the show, you would have seen my beautiful, beautiful diver's helmet, and that was picked up through Amazon. And a big thank you and a big, I like your jib, to all the listeners, 
The love in the last year has been amazing. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for the support uh, and big exciting things coming up for the garage. That's right. And until next time, be good, be kind, and don't let And be a human. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.